When you see an all-timer I've been reflecting since memory tent on my pathfinder Quick reminder, never side with a sidewinder Hi, and welcome to the Rational Black Thought, the podcast I'm your host, Mike Cheatham And this is episode number 16 And it's January the 23rd and the theme for this week's episode is The Big Lie. Um, and the subtitle uh, of the podcast this week is How to Build a Fascist State. And, of course, uh, the way that I typically do this, the theme of the podcast is also the same as the segment What's on My Mind. Uh, so that's uh, what I'll be talking about that's on my mind this week. So I'm going to change the structure of the format just slightly. Uh, typically, I would first go through feedback, but I did receive some feedback on Facebook, and a number of individuals uh, sent a message on Facebook letting me know that they were enjoying the podcast and, and some of the segments that they enjoyed, like Bible Study with Atheist Mike, etc., uh, but I didn't really get any pushback or on any of um, the topics from last week. So I'm going to skip uh, feedback uh, this week and just go straight to the segment, What's on My Mind. Uh, after that, we'll go through the news. And in the news, I have quite a bit to go through. Uh, there's a final uh, update on the 2020 election, which is the inauguration of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris that happened on Wednesday. Uh, I'm then also going to talk about the weak ass end to a destructive presidency when uh, President um, uh, Trump, or now ex-President Trump, uh, limped out of Washington, D.C. Um, in a pathetic display uh, of just how horrible his uh, administration had been. The next news story is um, just a review of prophecies gone wrong, and that's a review of all of the uh, so-called prophets of God that had uh, uh, said they heard directly from the mouth of God that Trump was going to win, and the uh, inauguration of Biden and Harris put all of that shit to an end. So we'll kind of go through that. Uh, the next news story is titled The Last Gasp of uh, Religion of Christian America. And um, the the article itself kind of uh, talked about a particular form 
of Christianity that was in its, uh, the, uh, the last throes of its death, uh, uh, spiral. Uh, but I believe that it is indicative of religion overall. And I'll talk a little bit about why and what that means. Uh, the next on the news are the 30, uh, so far executive orders that, and actions that Biden has signed in his first three days in office. Um, a lot of them are, undoing all of the things that uh, Trump did um, while through executive order while he was in in charge. And uh, one of them in particular, I am particularly happy about, which uh, I'll mention that. Next in the news, um, uh, we'll talk about um, uh, the U.S. Uh, coronavirus update uh, and what's going on there. Um, again, uh, spoiler alert, it's not good news. Uh, next we're going to talk about, um, Lloyd Austin, who was one of, um, Biden's, um, uh, secretary of, or pick for secretary of defense. And, uh, he was confirmed this week as the first black, uh, Pentagon or sorry, not uh, secretary of defense, but, uh, Pentagon chief, um, or maybe it was uh, Secretary of Defense. So anyway, uh, we'll talk about the the details of that. Uh, and then uh, the last story I want to talk about is a black doctor uh, who relate her story. She didn't trust the COVID vaccine, but changed her mind. And she goes through some information on both why she was skeptical in the beginning and, and what um, uh, changed her mind. And she received the uh, COVID vaccination. So um, I think it's important because there is a lot of um, resistance in the black community to the vaccine. So here is a doctor uh, who potentially shares some of the concerns that some of you may have. Uh, and uh, based on, uh, well, I'll let her tell her story on what actually changed her mind uh, to, uh, to, to actually end up getting the vaccine. So that will be it for the news. And then after uh, the news, we'll get to the segment that I call This Shit is for Us. Uh, and this week, what I want to talk about is what does it actually mean to be a citizen of the U.S. when you're black? Uh, so I want to talk about what citizenship typically means for the uh, population and talk about it from some specific pr perspectives for uh, those of us who are black in America. Um, as I had uh, mentioned last week, I'm going to do Bible study with Atheist Mike once a week, so um, we will have a February episode. I still haven't decided yet what the topic is going to be, but um, uh, more than likely um, by the end of uh, this coming week, which will be the by the time of the next podcast, I'll have at least a topic uh, so that you can study the, study the Bible in advance of of uh, my um, exposition on some of the biblical stories or content. And then after that, that'll be the end of the podcast this week, and we're going to close it out with a uh, just a, a review, a shout-out, and uh, some excerpts from uh, Amanda Gorman's uh, inaugural poem uh, for the inauguration I thought it was fantastic. I think she's fantastic. And uh, what a role model for what young 
uh, black Americans can do. So uh, definitely want to give her a shout out. Um, I think um, she did a better job than anybody else could have possibly done um, with that um, uh, inaugural um, address. I think what her poem was better than Biden's speech and better than anything else I heard that day. So uh, congratulations to Amanda Gorman on, on that. All right. So as I mentioned, I'm not going to really do feedback since there wasn't any specific feedback on content. So uh, when we come back, we'll get to the segment I call What's on My Mind. Welcome back. So what's on my mind this week? Uh, this week, I want to talk about the, the big lie. And um, last um, Sunday, uh, I read an article um, in the New York Times magazine written by Timothy Snyder called The American Abyss, a historian of fascism and political atrocity on Trump, the mob and what comes next. There was a lot of information in the article that I found intriguing, uh, not necessarily in a good way, uh, but I also found it in, instructional about our current situation. So I'll review some of the excerpts from that article and provide my commentary as we go along. So the article states that uh, when Trump stood before his followers on January 6th and urged them to march on the United States Capitol, he is doing what had always been done. He never took electoral democracy seriously, nor accepted the legitimacy of its American version. People believed him, which is not at all surprising. It takes a tremendous amount of work to educate citizens to resist the powerful pull of believing what they already believe uh, or of what others around them believe or what would make sense of their own previous choices. So, uh, in other words, the people were predisposed to the message that Trump told them, uh, even though uh, what he told them was a complete fallacy. So the article goes on to say that Trump's uh, push to overturn an election uh, must be shared by a large number of Republican members of Congress uh, rather than con contradict Trump from the beginning, they allowed his electoral fiction to flourish. They had different reasons for doing so. One group of Republicans is, a con is concerned above all with gaining, gaming the system to maintain power, taking full advantage of constitutional obscurities, gerrymandering, and dark money to win elections uh, with a minority of motivated voters. They have no interest in the collapse of the peculiar form of representation that allows their minority party to disproportionate control of government. Uh, the most important among them was Mitch McConnell, who indulged Trump's lie while making no comment on its consequences. Yet other Republicans saw the situation differently. They might actually break the system and have power without democracy. The split between these two groups, the gamers and the breakers, became sharply visible on December 30th when Senator Josh Hawley announced that he would support Trump's challenge by questioning the validity of the electoral votes on January 6th. 
Ted Cruz then promised his own support, joined by about 10 other senators. More than 100 Republican representatives took the same position. For many, this seemed like nothing more than a show uh, to challenge the votes. Uh, uh, the electoral votes would force delays on the floor, uh, but would not affect the outcome. Yet for Congress to transduce its basic functions, it had a price. An elected institution that opposes elections is inviting its own overthrow. Members of Congress who sustain the president's lie, despite the available and unambiguous evidence, betrayed their constitutional mission. Making his fictions the basis of congressional action gave them flesh. Now Trump could demand that senators and congressmen bow to his will. He could place personal responsibility on Mike Pence in charge of the formal proceedings to pervert them. And on January 6th, he directed his followers to exert pressure on these elected representatives, which they proceeded to do, storming the Capitol building, searching for people to punish, punish and ransacking the place. Now, um, one of the things that I just want to uh, kind of clarify before we go too much further um, again, the, the topic of, um, this week's what's on my mind is the big lie. And what this article was referring to as the big lie was the fact that the, um, that the uh, election was stolen, uh, from the people, um, who, who supported Trump. And for the most part, those were white Americans. And so the big lie was that the people of color uh, had stolen what was rightfully uh, white Americans, uh, Americas, and had um, therefore was in the process of uh, installing an illegitimate president uh, into office. And they had contrasted that lie of Trump with the numerous other lies. Um, the, the tracking organization, I think that his total was in the 30 something thousands of lies that he told through his four years in office. Uh, but this was the big lie. And, and they, they uh, kind of uh, compared that lie uh, to the lie that Adolf Hitler had when he came into power, when he was saying that um, uh, that Germany uh, was not did not lose World War One, that Germany uh, would have prevailed had it not been for the Jews which sold them out. So they're comparing uh, this identification of an other. Uh, that is the cause of all of the ills in the country, uh, that Hitler, uh, for Hitler, it was the lost, loss at World War I and the humiliation of Germany at the end of World War I and blaming, and Hitler blamed that on the Jews. And for Trump, uh, it was, um, the fact that he had lost the election, um, and he believed that he could characterize it in a way that all of the values that these uh, white racists and white supremacists, et cetera, held uh, had been not been uh, taken into consideration. Their votes didn't count. And instead, individuals, the others, uh, people of color, had stolen the election from them. So that's how they characterize this as the big lie. 
Um, so one of the things that they said uh, in November of 2020, reaching millions of lonely minds through social media, Trump told a lie that was dangerously ambitious, that he had won an election and uh, that he had, in fact, lost. This lie was big in every pertinent respect, not as big as the Jews run the world that Hitler said. Of course, I think it was as big and just as, as similar, but they said not as big, but big enough. Uh, the significance of the matter at hand was great. The right to rule the most powerful country in the world and the efficacy and trustworthiness of its succession, uh, succession procedures, the level of mendacity that was profound. The claim was not only wrong, but it was also made in bad faith amid unreliable sources. It challenged not just evidence, but logic. Just how could and why would an election have been rigged against a Republican president, but not against the Republican senators and representatives? Trump had to speak observably of a rigged uh, election for the president only. The force of the big lie resides in its demand uh, that many other things must be believed or disbelieved. To make sense of a world in which the 2020 presidential election was stolen requires distrust not only of reports and of experts, but also of local, state, and federal government institutions, from poll workers to elected officials, homeland security, and all the way to the Supreme Court. It brings with it, uh, with it of necessity a conspiracy theory. Imagine all the people that must have been in on such a plot and all the people uh, who would have to work uh, to cover it up. Trump's electoral fiction floats free of verifiable reality. It is defended uh, not so much by facts as by claims that someone else has made some claims. The sensibility is something that must be wrong uh, just because I feel it to be wrong and I know others feel the same way. When political leaders such as Ted Cruz or Jim Jordan spoke like this, what they meant was, you believe my lies, which compels me to repeat them, and social media provides an infinity of apparent evidence for any uh, conviction, especially one seemingly held by a president. So, and, and, and here's a, a part of this article that I really felt was poignant, and the reason why I wanted to mention it um, uh, as it relates to what's on my mind this week. Uh, and it talks about, well, it, it, let me just read into this. On the surface, a conspiracy theory makes its victim look strong. It seems uh, Trump is resisting the Democrats, the Republicans, the deep state, the pedophiles, the Satanists. More profoundly, however, it inverts the position of the strong and the weak. It changes the position of the strong and the weak. Trump's focus on alleged irregularities in contested states came down to cities where black people live and vote. At the bottom, the fantasy of fraud is that a crime committed by black people against white people. That was the big lie that Trump told. And this article says it's not just that the electoral fraud by African-Americans against Donald Trump never happened. It's that this is the very opposite of what happened in 2020 and in every American election. As always, black people waited longer than others to vote, were more likely to have their votes challenged, they were more likely to be suffering from or dying from COVID-19, and less likely to be able to take a, a time away from work to go vote. 
This historical protection of their right to vote has been removed by the Supreme Court's 2013 ruling in Shelby County versus Holder, and the states have rushed to pass measures of a kind that historically reduces voting by poor and communities, by the poor and communities of color. So what Trump was able to do with his lie is to tell these white people that the black people were the ones that were usurping authority and power over them. And that was, and that the black people had taken away their, uh, their vote for president. Uh, and because of that, he was able to resonate with this, with this hugely racist group of white Americans that supported Trump and to be able to have them think that all of these other, that every single one of his, his 60 something losses uh, in the courts while he was trying to overthrow the election, that that was because black people had all of this power and the deep state was supporting them and all of that. So that made them angry. And that made the, the crowd say, well, we'll take this to, uh, the Capitol and we'll storm the Capitol and the, the police are against us. So we'll beat the police with flagpoles and, and fire extinguishers and, and Pence turned on us. So we'll yell, hang Pence. And if we can find them, we'll actually, uh, murder him. And, and where's Pelosi so that we could kill her? They believe that they were fighting for right. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not at all excusing what these fuckers did. They're fucking idiots. And like I have said be many, many times before, they're willfully ignorant. They believe this shit because they wanted to believe it, because it resonated with who they were and what they are, which is racist. And so Trump was able to tap into that, tell them the big lie to say that America was on its way to greatness again, make America great again. It was on its way until these black and brown people started coming in and illegally in Trump's mind voting uh, to put somebody else in power and to take me out. Uh, and like, like Trump had said, is there's no way I lost Georgia. Why? Because Georgia has been historically racist. And so his mind is there couldn't be that many black people uh, who, who voted for uh, Biden and therefore not enough white people who voted for me. But uh, which is true. And we'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, one of the, the news stories, because the majority of white people did, in fact, vote for Trump. But uh, 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 again, the, the main thing that I want to note here is that this lie that Trump told is very similar to the same thing that Hitler did uh, to be able to get into power. And one of the uh, a, a similar um, article that I had saw on, on television on the news uh, when they were when they equated what Trump did to Mussolini because in 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 Mussolini's case he was a he came to power in a democracy and turned it into a fascist state and that's es essentially what Trump was uh, attempting to do. So this article goes on, though, and it talks about when Senator Ted Cruz announced his intention to challenge the Electoral College vote. Uh, and you, what I'm about to say, you'll remember that I had that in a previous this in a previous episode. 
when Ted Cruz announced his intention to challenge the Electoral College vote, he, he invoked the Compromise of 1877, which resolved the presidential election of 1876. Commentators pointed out that this was no relevant precedent since back then there really were serious voter irregularities and there really was a stalemate in Congress. For African Americans, however, the seemingly gratuitous reference led somewhere else. The Compromise of 1877, which Rutherford B. Hayes would would have the presidency provided that he withdraw federal uh, power from the South, the, was the very arrangement whereby African Americans were driven from voting booths for the better part of a century. It was effectively the end of Reconstruction, the beginning of segregation, legal discrimination, and Jim Crow. It's the original sin of American history in the post-slavery era, our closest brush with fascism fascism so far. And that's 100% true. And I had said this in in a prior uh, episode of the podcast, Ted Cruz knew that. When he said that I want to do what they did in 1876, he knew that the 1876 uh, commission led to the Compromise of 1877 and that the Compromise of 1877 led to the end of Reconstruction and the brutalization of African Americans for uh, uh, a century, for 100 years. And and in my opinion, that's what Ted Cruz was looking for. He wasn't trying to get the votes for Biden thrown out. He was trying to get Biden to agree that he would allow the Republican Party to suppress the black vote going forward if they acknowledged him as president. That's what he was doing. And I am 100% sure they're going to continue trying to do that to do that. So this article goes on that if Trump remains uh, present in American political life, he will surely repeat his big lie incessantly. Hawley and Cruz and the other breakers share the responsibility for where this leads. Cruz and Hawley seem to be running for president, yet what does it mean to be a candidate in the office and denounce voting? If you claim that the other side has cheated and your supporters believe you, they will expect you to cheat yourself. By defeating, uh, by defending Trump's big lie on January 6th, they set a precedent. A Republican presidential candidate who loses an election should be appointed anyway by Congress. Uh, Republicans in the future, at least the breaker candidates for president, will presumably have a plan A to win. And if they don't, then they have a plan B to lose and win. No fraud is necessary, only allegations that there are allegations of fraud, truth to be replaced by spectacle, facts, and get this, facts by faith, which again is exactly what I had mentioned in a previous episode. Faith is not a legitimate way of knowing anything, and individuals that operate by faith for anything whether or not to believe in God, whether or not to believe in uh, in uh, election irregularities, uh, whether or not to to believe that um, the election was stolen, if you use faith to know the truth, you are going to be wrong one hundred percent of the time. So anyway, that's what was on my mind this week, and we have to be prepared to fight against this big lie. 
and to make sure that again the we don't experience a parallel of the activities that happened in 1876 and 1877 uh, and have um, black America sold out for unity and uh, and coming together uh, again in the uh, Republican uh, or Republican Democratic parties. So I'm going to keep my eye on it and I hope you do the same. All right, so that's it for uh, What's on My Mind. We'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll get to the news. All right, welcome back. So the first story in the in the news is just an update on the election. I've been doing that um, every week, and this will be the last update on the 2020 election because the only step we had left was the inauguration of Biden and Harris, uh, which happened this past uh, Wednesday. And so Joseph R. Biden and Kamala D. Harris took the oath of office at the Capitol and it was a capital that was still reeling from the attack of a violent mob uh, at a time when it, and also at a time when a deadly pandemic is still ravaging the, comp- the country. And the ritualistic uh, transfer of power uh, ended weeks of suspense as the vanquished president, uh, i.e. Trump, had waged a relentless bid to hang on only to be rebuffed at every level of government, clearing the way for Mr. Biden to claim uh, his office. Uh, with his hand on a five-inch thick Bible that had been in his family for 128 years, uh, Mr. Biden recited the 35-word oath administered by Chief Justice John G. Roberts at 11.49 a.m., 11 minutes before the constitutionally prescribed noon hour. Vice President Kamala Harris was sworn in a few minutes earlier by Justice Sonia Sotomayor, uh, using a Bible that had once belonged to Thurgood Marshall, the civil rights icon and Supreme Court justice. Ms. Harris thus became the highest ranking woman in the history of the United States and the first black American and first person of South Asian descent to hold the nation's second highest office. So the good thing about the inauguration uh, on on this past Wednesday was that it went by without a hitch. There uh, had been rumors of some uh, additional insurrectionist uh, activity that were planned, uh, but I think that um, uh, once uh, Trump was stripped of access to all of his social media, uh, once uh, the the va- uh, a large number anyway of the insurrectionists that stormed the cra- uh, capital started to get arrested, that the uh, the power of Trump to incite a riot had been greatly diminished. On the other hand, like I had mentioned last week, um, there were also twenty five thousand uh, National Guard members to protect the inauguration. So. I'm not sure if having 25,000 troops uh, is a is indicative of a trans uh, a peaceful transfer of power, but nonetheless, it was a 
relatively symbolic and ritualistic transfer of power uh, and went, uh, went on without any major issues. So good that we're done with that. Last uh, comment on the 2020 election. Uh, and now we are into 2021 and the Biden administration, and we can uh, start to talk about that. Now that Trump is gone, that's probably going to reduce the number of topics that I have to discuss on the podcast. Uh, I'll probably have to shift over to religion completely because it's not likely that much is going to be going on in, in the political realm. But speaking as uh, uh, about politics, going on to the next story, um, uh, Trump leaves Washington with his tail between his legs and uh, whimpering like a little bitch, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, the defeated and twice impeached uh, 45th president um, used his farewell remarks uh, before a sparse crowd uh, to brag about his record and wish luck to the incoming administration, which, of course, was the first time that he had really ever even acknowledged. And he didn't use Biden's name, by the way, he just called it the incoming administration. Uh, but when uh, when Trump left Washington aboard Air Force One, which he had to leave, of course, early in the morning because he wouldn't be president afternoon. So uh, the only way he could get on Air Force One was to have his farewell um, uh, early in the morning. And in many ways, Mr. Trump's last hours as president were a bookend to the kickoff of his presidential campaign in June of 2015. As he did then, he tossed aside prepared remarks uh, that aides had helped draft and instead spoke off the cuff, having them take down uh, teleprompters they had set up. Uh, and as he did then, he spent hours focused on the visual aspect of the scene. Uh, he would speak um, at the end of um, uh, a final three months that capped a uh, tumultuous uh, term. Um, Trump, uh, I think his his uh, farewell was indicative of just what he has become. It was attended by approximately 300 supporters and a couple of members and past members of his cabinet and his family. The majority of the, the Senate was at the inauguration, uh, and his vice president, his vice president was at the inauguration. And there was a motley little crew of losers that were left to, uh, wish the, uh, the, the, the loser goodbye. So, it, and I did watch a little bit of his goodbye, but not much of it. Uh, he looked beaten. He looked lost. Uh, he looked defeated. And um, and to me, it was one of the best things that I've ever seen. He's a fucking idiot and a fucking uh, just uh, uh, evil person. So uh, the fact that it came to him uh, leaving as uh, the only president in history to be impeached twice um, and to have a sparse crowd and not even his vice president to support him, I think is is fitting. All right, let's move to the next story. This next story is titled Prophecies Gone Wrong, uh, Men of God Who Falsely Predicted uh, Trump's uh, Second Term Win. And it's interesting to me the kind of machinations these motherfuckers are going through now uh, to try to say that uh, that what they said and everybody clearly heard, they really didn't say. 
Uh, I mean, for example, like one of them uh, had said that he he never said that that God said that Trump was going to have four more years. Uh, he just said that he said that other uh, what did he say? He said that uh, that that God that he had thought God said that Trump would have four more years, but not that that God really actually said that. But that's fucking completely bullshit, because obviously he did say that. That's what he said. And everybody was aware of it. He said that 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 Trump was going to be um, in office for another four years and and then started to equivocate uh, once that didn't happen. Uh, But let's get into the details uh, of this story. So during the 2020 United States presidential election, prophets and also Prophet test and pastors across the globe made predictions that Donald Trump, the 45th president of the United States, would defeat uh, Democratic candidate Joe Biden, but their prophecies never came to pass. And um, one of the latter day prophets is uh, Jeremiah Johnson, uh, a Charlotte, North Carolina based evangelist who predicted Trump. Uh, Trump's triumph in the 2016 election because, according to him, God had shown Trump would secure a second term in office. On his official Instagram profile, Johnson narrated a long revelation where he saw two old women rescue Trump in a race. The prophet translated this to mean that the 74-year-old Trump would again secure a win over the Democratic candidate. Uh, how, uh, based on that fucking stupid ass dream he had, I have no idea, but, uh, that's, that's what he said. However, Johnson's prophecy did not come true. Trump was ousted according to the official declaration by the U.S. Election Commission and later upheld by the U.S. Con- uh, Congress. Johnson eventually apologized over his unfulfilled proce- prophecy in a video posted on his Instagram page adding that he had gotten death threats from people who called him a false prophet, which all prophets are false, so of course you are. Some Christian congregations, conservative Christians, missionaries, and individuals hold the belief that Trump's second term bid is in connection with the fulfillment of religious prophecy. Rick Perry, the outgoing U.S. Secretary of Energy, had an interview with Fox News had referred to Trump as, quote, the chosen one, end quote, arguing that God uses imperfect people to fulfill their prophecies. God used imperfect people all through history, Perry said, naming several biblical uh, figures. King David wasn't perfect. Saul wasn't perfect. Solomon wasn't perfect, Perry said. Believing the biblical narrative, Trump adopted the religious reference describing himself as, quote, the chosen one, end quote, while addressing journalists over trade matters with China. Someone had to do it, he he had said, and I am the chosen one. Trump, uh, uh, another pastor, Chris um, uh, Valentin, the resident pastor at Bethel Church in Redding, California, also took the same stance as Johnson during the electioneering period. He claimed that Trump would lead the U.S. for another four years. Volatin said to uh, uh, said this in public to his over 11,000 members of his non-denominational church, but his prophecy did not come true. After the outcome uh, of the presidential 2020 election, Volatin released a, an apology video stating that he, in fact, predicted Trump would not be impeached, 
but would go on to win his second term in office. I really want to apologize, sincerely apologize, for missing the prophecy about Donald Trump, said Volanton. I was completely wrong. I take full responsibility for being wrong. There's no excuse for it. I think it does make it doesn't make me a false prophet, but it does actually create a credibility gap. Uh, I, I'm not sure what the fuck he's talking about there. How is it that it doesn't make you a false prophet? You're not a prophet if you clearly state that you prophesied that Trump was going to win and that you heard it directly from God and then Trump doesn't win. And so you apologize, but you say, but that doesn't make me a false prophet. Uh, all, like I said before, all prophets are false. So yes, you are a false prophet. And then there's Paula White, a televangelist and spiritual advisor to Trump during a prayer service. She requested, and I had mentioned this and even played, uh, excerpts from, uh, what she said then where she prayed for angels from Africa and South America to come to Trump's aid in securing a second term, and she claimed she could hear the sound of victory. She said, quote, I hear the sound of victory. The Lord says it's done. And she said that over and over again. And she said, uh, quote, for angels have been dispatched from Africa right now in the name of Jesus from South America. They come in here, the televangelist said. Uh, unfortunately, the African and South American angels never came to rescue uh, as Biden is set to be inaugurated or was inaugurated on January the 20th. And then uh, there is um, a Terrible West, a former Super Eagles player uh, that is a soccer player turned pastor. Uh, he's among uh, Nigerian pastors who claim that Trump would win. And I mentioned a bunch of those idiot fucking Nigerians uh, uh, who are Trump supporters uh, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, this uh, terrible said, quote, Donald Trump will win the election with a slight split edge over Joe Biden. So quote me, I wanted to be out there before time, uh, said West, but his prophecy was wrong as Trump did not win. Also, there was David Elijah, a pastor at Glorious Mount of Possibility Church uh, in, in Laos, um, Nigeria, and in uh, Lagos, Nigeria, and a, and a viral video also claimed that Trump would emerge uh, victorious. So um, all of these prophecies from all these fucking idiot pastors and prophetess, uh, so self-claimed, uh, talking about Joe, uh, that, that Joe Biden wouldn't win and that Donald Trump was going to be, uh, have a second term all turned out to be wrong. And what are they saying now? They're all scrambling around trying to justify their bullshit, uh, to say that, um, that's not really what they meant and that's not really what they said when clearly it is. So, uh, what does this tell me and what should it tell you? is one of the things that I told someone long ago, It's and that is that if someone tells me or makes the statement that God told me, then 100% of the time, whatever comes after that is fucking bullshit. And that's the lesson you should take from this. If someone says that God told me I don't give a fuck what it comes after that. You can bet that that's fucking bullshit. And so don't listen to it. It has no relevance in reality. Uh, it's just complete nonsense. Um, of course, the reason for that is quite clear. 
And the reason for all of these uh, prophecies not coming true is quite clear. And that is because God didn't tell them shit because God doesn't exist. So there is no God, no message. Uh, and Donald Trump is a fucking loser, just like um, uh, I um, had hoped he would be. All right. So let's move on to the uh, next story. And this next story is titled The Ferocious Last Gasp of the Religion of Christian America. And the article that I read is pro-religion, but um, it, it points the points they make uh, are to show that, uh, in my opinion, they the, the points they made show that all religion is on its deathbed. But the article presents a no true Scotsman fallacy. So what is a no true Scotsman fallacy? Uh, that is a fallacy, which is an informal fallacy in which one attempts to protect a universal generalization from counterexamples by changing the definition in an ad hoc fashion to exclude the counterexample rather than denying the counterexample or rejecting the original claim this fallacy modifies the subject of the assertion to exclude the specific case or others like it by rhetoric without reference to any new specific objective rule or criteria. Now, I know that that is a, uh, a somewhat scholarly definition, so let me give you a bit of an example and how this gets its name. The quote, no true Scotsman would do such a thing, i.e., those who perform that action are not part of the group, and thus the criticism of that action is not a criticism of the group. So uh, what what that would mean, for example, uh, and the way that it comes out in, in Christianity, like when I pointed out to my sister that uh, the many of the individuals that, uh, that stormed the Capitol uh, had flags that said, and signs that said, Jesus saved, and God we trust, God's with us. Uh, on and on and on. And so I had made the comment that they were Christians. She said, well, they're not true Christians. Now, why did, can, would she say they're not cru true, true cr Christians? Because of that, what that definition says is she simply says that a true Christian wouldn't do that. So she, she doesn't, she, she doesn't, uh, argue against the fact that these people say they're Christians and they are in fact doing the thing uh, which it's obvious they did, i.e. stormed the Capitol and threatened to kill people. Uh, but the argument is just, well, a true Christian wouldn't do that. But these are Christians. They are, they are self-proclaimed Christians. They have signs saying they're Christians. They, they conduct prayer. They conducted a prayer in the Capitol building after storming it. So you can't say that they aren't true Christians. They are Christians and their belief system, uh, based on Christianity, told them that they were right to do what they did uh, to attempt to murder uh, individuals because they had a different um, uh, political belief system. So the article goes on, Donald Trump's presidency has baffled the majority of Americans for four years. What should we make of a decisive Christian support for an American politician whose life and priorities are fundamentally anti-Christian? Why would elected members of any party support legal maneuvers that would undermine American democracy? How could insurrection against the people's government be uh, configured as patriotism? 
As Trump's, as Trump's reign implodes, these anomalies betray the last gaps of a long-standing American religion that is now passing away. The religion of Christian America sustained by corrupted, a corrupted version of Christianity. Now, that's, this article says a corrupted version of Christianity, and that's where I say they're using a no true Scotsman argument or fallacy. Uh, because essentially what they're saying is that these people aren't real Christians, but they are. They are real Christians. And so when they say that this American religion is now passing away, they, they want to try to narrow that to only these individuals who uh, believe in Trump and supported Trump. But in fact, this is just the the, the way that uh, Christianity is structured. It, it, it again is based upon, uh, a knowing by faith without facts and without evidence. And if that's the approach that you're going to take, you're always going to get this shit. But the article goes on that, uh, and it talks about, I skipped over, um, quite a bit of it, but, um, uh, it started talking about like the history of uh, this version of Christianity that they're talking about, the Christian American, uh, uh, religion. And they talk about uh, then came 1960s when the founders promise of liberty, equality and equality for all began to bear uh, new and if measured in Calvin's terms, uh, altogether radical fruit, uh, probably strange fruit uh, would be a better way of saying that people of color, women, gays, lesbians and nonconforming people of every sort found in the revolution of the 1960s, a legitimacy that they had not known before. Emboldened, they began to claim their rightful place in America's public square. By the late 1970s, Christians chiefly committed to white and patriarchal power launched a counter-revolution that played itself out in the U.S. churches and communities, winning over fundamentalists and evangelicals in particular. Intent on controlling the nation's halls of power, their efforts sailed under the banner of saving Christian America. The ultimate concern of millions who consciously or unconsciously followed the lead of Christian America focused squarely on preserving the privilege and power that their earlier dominance had afforded them. They are determined to block women, people of color, immigrants, gays, transgender transgender people, and others marginalized for most of American history from obtaining the status that they think is reserved for them. So what this is saying is that these white people who are uh, mostly Christian, uh, probably 90% Christian, or and also 100% uh, racist, and 100% believe in uh, the concept of white supremacy, uh, they looked at the fact that others started to gain legitimacy and therefore civil rights as a detraction from what they thought was exclusively theirs. They believed that uh, the America uh, that America was founded on the principle that all white people were created equal and all white people had a right uh, to the pursuit of happiness, uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but not people of color, not gays, not lesbians, not uh, anybody that they felt was outside of who they were. So uh, what this, this article concludes then that uh, we will therefore see more assaults, perhaps even more violent assaults 
on the Constitution and the government established by America, the uh, America's founders. And those who launch those assaults will inevitably ground them in the vulnerable tradition of Christian America that is dying before our eyes. Well, for me, it can't die fast enough. Uh, I'm good for Christian America to die and for uh, Christianity overall to die and Islam to die and Buddhism to die and every other religion because I don't believe that they provide any value whatsoever and instead uh, present um, nothing but uh, negative consequences um, in everything that they do. All right, um, next story. Um, and this is, I'm just going to go through this uh, very briefly. I'm not going to go into the details. Uh, but Biden has, uh, since in his first three days of office, has uh, signed uh, 30 executive orders and or actions um, uh, to start to change the country away from what um, uh, Trump had created. Uh, so President Joe Biden has signed a flurry of executive orders, actions, and memorandums aimed at rapidly addressing the coronavirus pandemic and dismantling many of President Trump's policies. The 30 uh, executive actions Biden has taken in his first in the first days of his in administration include halting funding for the construction of Trump's uh, border wall, which I absolutely love that. And I think it's a specific dig at Trump on that one. Uh, since that's, uh, not that big of a deal, but I'm glad, he, glad Biden did it. Hopefully they will go and pull the little, uh, plaque off the wall that Trump went a couple of weeks ago, uh, to, to sign so they can rip that off and tear it down and, and, uh, eliminate all, um, reference to Trump and his fucking wall. Uh, Biden also, uh, reversed, uh, Trump's, uh, travel ban, um, uh, that it targeted largely Muslim communities. And he also imposed a mask mandate on federal, uh, property. So, um, a lot of good things that he's doing so far. Um, he's also ramping up, uh, vaccination supplies and requiring international travels to provide proof of a negative COVID-19 test. Uh, prior to traveling to the U.S. All good things, uh, in my opinion. So that was a bit of good news uh, for this week. And I'm going to go to a bit of bad news um, as well. And that's, again, another update on the coronavirus. So where are we now in the U.S.? Um, the U.S. is now uh, slightly over 25 million cases. We have a total number of deaths of uh, 400 and a little over 423,000. And uh, the deaths per day have still been above uh, 4,000 for the last few days. So um, one of the things I wanted to note here is that that 25 million coronavirus cases, um, we are by far uh, ahead of the next uh, country uh, in cases. The next country is India, and India has uh, a little over 10 million cases. Um, and the thing of it is, though, that I think is important to note is that India has 1 billion people more than the U.S. So India has 1.3 billion people, and the U.S. has roughly 323 million people. And so India has a billion more people and less than half the total number of cases. And India didn't even do that good of a job. As far as I'm concerned, Trump had to try 
in order to be this bad, in order to create 25 million cases and, 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 and almost uh, 425,000 deaths. He had to try to do that because India that didn't necessarily even do a great job and has a billion more people has less than half the cases. So I'm, I'm glad that uh, we have at least someone is in, in charge now who has put um, scientists and doctors in charge uh, and is listening to what they have to say about what we need to do and is moving forward with some concrete plans to start to reverse uh, these trends. But unfortunately, with what Biden inherited from Trump, uh, I believe that this trajectory is going to continue in the wrong direction for some time to come. But hopefully over the next three or four months, we can start to get ahead of the game and start to bring this this down. All right. Uh, the next news story is about um, uh, Lloyd Austin. Uh, he was, um, as I mentioned in the intro, um, Biden's uh, uh, pick uh, for the uh, defense secretary. And he was just confirmed by the U.S. Senate, so making him the first black uh, defense secretary in, U in the U.S. history. And the Senate approved uh, President Biden's nomination uh, by um, uh, near unanimous vote. It was 93 to 2. Uh, I don't know who the two people were, but I can pretty much guess uh, who they were. And um, Lloyd Austin, General Austin, said that it's an honor and a privilege to serve as our country's 28th Secretary of Defense, and I'm especially proud to be the first African-American to hold the position. And he also added, let's go to work. So uh, he's ready to get started, ready to, to, to go to work. Hopefully he will bring some uh, compassion uh, into his job. Um, that is something that has been sorely missed uh, in that role from previous administrations. Um, and Austin's nomination was approved despite concerns raised on both sides that he hadn't been out of uniform for the legally mandated seven-year period, but the National Security Act of 1947 created the role to ensure that civil con uh, control over the military is maintained, but it also permits a waiver if lawmakers on both the House uh, and the Senate approve, and they did. So these votes also passed in a bipartisan fashion, clearing the way uh, for Austin's confirmation. So that's a good deal. All right. The last story that I want to go through this week is um, a story about a black uh, doctor who didn't trust the, uh, the COVID vaccine. And uh, she went through her story about why she didn't trust it and uh, what uh, changed her mind. Uh, her name is um, uh, Dr. Eugenia South, uh, and uh, just want to go through her story. Uh, she had said, we are, we are black and we know these standards are not always guaranteed for us. And she was talking about standards of care uh, as it relates to how black people are treated um, in, by the medical community. And she said, I'm a doctor and I have seen black patients treated with disrespect, their concerns and symptoms dismissed. I reflected on this complex relationship between racism and mistrust, and I considered, as I considered, to take the COVID-19 vaccine. As an emergency uh, medicine physician with regular exposure to COVID-19 patients, I knew I would be prioritized for vaccination. 
However, for many months, I was decidedly and definitely against being among the first to get the shot. Instead, I planned to wait and see how others did with the vaccine. I suppose I'm wary of the very system uh, to which I have dedicated nearly two decades of my career. And uh, she goes on to say, to be clear, I'm not a vaccine skeptic. My th three children are fully vaccinated, and I dutifully take my flu shot every year. But I had serious doubts about the speed of the COVID-19 vaccine development process, which seemed to me to be a politically motive, a political tool uh, that then President Donald Trump was trying to use to win re-election. How could a vaccine develop under a president who displayed repeated acts of racism and who actively enabled white supremacist groups be trusted? Across the country, many, many Americans are, are wrestling with similar concerns. And yet, on December 17th, 2020, I received my first dose of the vaccine. And she goes on to say, here's what changed my mind. First, I had to educate myself about how the vaccine had been created. The M, NRA technology behind the COVID-19 vaccine has been under development for decades. Yes, its compressed timeline was aided by governmental funding, but the vaccine was worked on by thousands of scientists, underwent a rigorous three-phase clinical trial process, and was approved by two federal advisory boards, the Food and Drug Administration and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Also seeing photographs of uh, uh, Kismika Corbett, which is one of the individuals that I had talked about in a uh, previous episode, who is a black scientist at the heart of, the Moder of Moderna's vaccine development in her lab, was powerful. Representation matters, and it is critical to um, repairing centuries of structural racism that contributed to medical mistrust. The second thing uh, she says she did was I read the experience of people of color and trusted black physicians who had participated in vaccine trials, reading their thought processes, uh, how they weighed risk and benefits and what their symptoms were after the second dose helped me envision taking uh, the vaccine. Never doubt the power of social media and the written word to influence behavior. The third thing she talks about was that uh, she said, my mom practically begged me to get uh, the vaccine. Since March, she's been hearing my own terrifying stories about COVID-19 patients, the tears of a young woman with only mild symptoms who worried about exposing her elderly fa father in their small home, the middle-aged healthy healthcare worker who came in gasping for air, the fear in her eyes as we talked about the need for intubation. She survived, but many did not. Still, I was undecided until the Pfizer trial was published. The graph from that study showed the continued use of COVID-19 infection in the placebo group compared to the near-complete drop-off of those who had received the vaccine will be forever imprinted on my mind. In addition to being a physician, I'm a scientist. And while the historical examples of experimentation on black bodies in the name of science are all too numerous to count, and concerns about racism and bias in research persist, I still trust rigorous science. I was almost ready to say yes. My final concern was the risk of a rare, severe, and yet undocumented long-term side effect of the vaccine. The Pfizer study only followed people for two months. 
but I was reassured to learn that the vaccine's generally, the vaccine's generally adverse reactions most commonly occur in the first days to weeks after vaccination. I weighed those unknowns against the risk of contracting the coronavirus, death, a prolonged hospital stay, and perhaps uh, most um, convincing to me, the increasing uh, documented lingering and not rare long-term complications from COVID-19 itself. Brain fog, difficult breathing, uh, extreme fatigue, and depression. And she ends by saying the choice became clear. I would get the vaccine. And I hope that that is a message for all of the rest of us um, as well. Uh, I know that there's a lot of trepidation in the black community about getting the, the black uh, or getting the uh, COVID vaccine. But here is a black doctor who had some similar concerns is, in my opinion, more informed than uh, the majority of us about what goes on in the medical community. And uh, and therefore, her concerns were based on reality. Uh, but after a thorough review of the options, as she said, in the end, the choice became clear. She would get the vaccine and I will, too. And so should you as soon as you can. All right. So that's it for the news. So we'll take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll do the segment I call This Shit is for Us. is the segment that I call This uh, Shit is for Us. And as I say every week, um, what that means is this is a segment that is uh, specifically for black people. And that isn't to say that if you're not black, you can't, uh, you, you have to stop listening to this. You can still listen to it, but um, the message is designed to be for black people and therefore uh, some of the nuances of what I am saying you might not be able to get. Uh, because it's a black thing. And for this segment of This Shit is for Us, what I want to talk about is what exactly does it mean to be a citizen of the U.S. Uh, when you're black? And um, I, I, can, I can recall a um, lecture that was given by Frederick Douglass uh, when they had asked him to speak um, uh, on, uh, in, in, on the occasion of the 4th of July, uh, and he had agreed, but he uh, he, he wrote a speech that uh, was titled uh, "What is the Fourth of July to a Slave?" And uh, I, I think that it, that his message was very poignant. Uh, and so, uh, and and I kind of equate it to this uh, uh, segment of this shit is for us, and that. Uh, what does it really mean to be a citizen of the U.S. when you're black? Um, we have been uh, forced to live almost second-class citizenship for hundreds of years. Uh, so what exactly should we do as a citizen uh, in this country and in, 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 in an America that is still, for all intents and, and purposes, racist? So uh, the first thing that I want to do, though, is just to go through and talk about um, the, uh, the, the benefits and the responsibilities that are uh, included in 
being a citizen of the United States. So uh, as you know, uh, there are uh, paths to citizenship for immigrants, uh, but any of those of us that were born in the United States, uh, we are citizens by birth, even though um, even though the uh, some of the Republicans have been trying to even twist uh, that constitutional um, uh, statement uh, to say that uh, individuals that are born in the United States should not be citizens if their parents are not citizens. So, uh, again, this is going back to the attempt by many um, uh, white racists uh, to try to hold on to a power as they see more and more uh, people of color, um, uh, our, our population is gaining in the U.S. And like I mentioned last uh, week, uh, it is it is projected that by 2045, uh, white people will no longer be the majority in the U.S. People of color will be. And so they are uh, looking at the elimination of their privilege in America and finding multiple ways to uh, to try to um, uh, circumvent that. But let's talk about this. So what are the um, uh, the benefits of of being a citizen of the U.S.? Um, and I, I think uh, the, both the the benefits and the responsibilities of citizenship are somewhat overlapping. In many cases, they are, in fact, the same thing. As an example, uh, one of the benefits is the uh, right to vote in federal elections and the ability to serve on a jury. Um, most of us try to get out of jury duty, and too many of us don't vote, but uh, that is uh, one of the benefits of being a citizen of the U.S. Um, you also have uh, the freedom to express yourself. You have the freedom to worship um, as you wish, or as for me, uh, not to worship as I wish, <laughs> and I don't wish to worship at all. You have a right to a prompt and fair trial by jury. Um, you have a right to keep and bear arms. Um, you have a right, as I had said, to vote in elections for public office. You have a right to apply for federal employment. And again, as I'm going through these things, uh, as I'm saying these are the rights of citizens, uh, you can imply from that that non-citizens in the U.S. Uh, do not have these same rights. Um, so um, you have a right to run for elected office. Uh, you have um, the freedom to pursue life, uh, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You can travel with a U.S. passport. You can participate in a jury. You can become eligible for federal and certain law enforcement jobs. You can obtain uh, certain state and federal benefits not available to non-citizens. You can obtain citizenship for minor children born abroad. And uh, lastly, you can expand and expedite the ability to bring family members to the United States. So uh, if you that's if you were an immigrant that became a citizen of the United States and you had family members that were outside the United States and not um, citizens, you could ex uh, expedite their the ability to bring them to the U.S., so what are your responsibilities generally? The responsibility to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Uh, you could see in the oath of office, both uh, Kamala Harris and Biden made that statement that they 
uh, pledged to defend and support the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Uh, you have the responsibility to stay informed of the issues affecting your community. That's a responsibility of citizenship. You have the responsibility to participate in the democratic process. Um, and the main way to do that is to vote. Uh, but there are other ways as well, like your right to run for uh, office uh, as well. Uh, you do uh, have the responsibility to uh it says respect. Uh, I don't necessarily think you have to respect, but you do have to obey federal, state, and local laws. Uh, you have to, um, again, it says respect uh, the rights and beliefs and opinions of others. I don't think you have to do that, but you do. Uh, you can't. Um, uh, you can't go around uh, shutting people down uh, by force. Uh, so you have to tolerate. I would say not necessarily respect the rights, beliefs, and opinions of others. Uh, you uh, should, again, participate in your local community. You have to pay income taxes um, and other taxes, honestly and on time, to the federal, state, and local authorities. Uh, and that includes uh, you stupid-ass motherfuckers that think you're moors and that you don't have to pay taxes because of that. Uh, you're not. You're a U.S. citizen, and you have to pay your fucking taxes. You have to serve on a jury when you're called upon to do so, and you should, and you have to defend this country if the need uh, should arise. But um, what uh, one of the things that I want to talk about, though, uh, about the benefits and the rights of citizenship is, and I've been talking about this uh, topic for the last few weeks. Uh, what would have happened? had the compromise of 1877 not occurred, um, and uh, what would the United States look like today uh, if back then the newly freed slaves um, at the end of the Civil War had been granted full political and social equality uh, along with equal economic opportunities? Of course, this did not happen, and for a host of reasons, uh, but a central reason was economic. Uh, the continued cultivation of cotton was essential to the restoration of the economy of the South and to the prosperity of the United States as a whole. The use of slave labor, labor uh, in the cotton industry had been crucial to the generation of, Amer to the generation of American wealth in the um, uh, three decades um, uh, before the Civil War. By 1850, more than $2 billion were invested in slaves, the equivalent of $60 billion today. Uh, before the invention of the cotton gin in 1793, uh, one slave could clean a, a one pound of raw cotton per 14-hour day, uh, with the cotton gin production increased by a factor of 50 so that one person could now clean 50 pounds of cotton per day. The cotton gin transformed the economy of the South, whereas 300,000 bales of cotton were harvested in 1820. Three million bales of cotton were harvested in 1850. America overtook India as the world's uh, principal cotton producer. But how would the country's history um, since 1865 have been different uh, had not this been the case? What would the American economic and political landscape look like at the dawn of the 21st century? Um, it's an intriguing question that many scholars have pondered, but no one, to my knowledge, had systematically attempted to answer. So um, 
But there is some information that has come out uh, on this. Uh, if America had racial equality in education and jobs, uh, African-Americans would have two million more high school degrees, two million more college degrees, nearly two million more professionals and managerial jobs, and nearly 200 billion more income. If America had racial equality in housing, three million more African-Americans would own their own homes. And if America had racial equality in wealth, African-Americans would have 760 billion more in home equity value, $200 billion more in retirement funds, and $80 billion more in the bank. That alone would uh, total over $1 trillion more in wealth in the black community. Now, the reason that I wanted to talk about that as it relates to citizenship is that, as I have been saying uh, for the last several weeks, we need to be very vigilant, uh, vigilant to make sure that we don't experience another event like the Compromise of 1877. And if we don't, if we can start to get the kind of equality that we deserve and the fairness in, in all of these various areas uh, that we deserve, we can start to generate um, uh, this assessment of what would have happened since 1865 if uh, there hadn't been racism uh, and the, um, uh, the, the oppression of, of black people in the United States. And that would result in $1 trillion in more wealth for us. And so uh, imagine what we could start to do with, with that and what we could start to change uh, with that. So I think it's, it's very, very important for us to stay focused and to hold uh, Biden and Kamala Harris accountable for uh, putting forward um, our agenda and making sure that we get the things that we deserve. So the, the recent history of African-Americans and citizen, citizenship is really a fraught and intense one, uh, made uh, all the more uh, so uh, given the fact that black people have been fighting for freedom and equal rights for centuries. As a consequence of arriving in North America as enslaved laborers, African-Americans have, through subsequent history, existed either at the margins of citizenship and rights and privileges that are conferred by said citizenship or having been excluded entirely. And that has had stark consequences. Black people have resisted and challenged their mar marginalization since their first arrival, uh, helping to remake legal definitions of citizenship and democracy in the process, and helping to usher in significant reforms in watershed moments in time, as witnessed during the Reconstruction era or the classical phase of civil rights movement, for example. The latter period, stretching from the 1950s through the 1960s, revealed a particularly potent combination of black resistance, legal shifts, and legislative reforms that dramatically reshaped American democracy for African Americans and expanded the boundaries of citizenship to better include black people. And all by collective measure, African Americans have experienced considerable progress in the last 60 years, uh, disintegration, um, exclusive or disintegrating rather exclusive sites of power across society, most notably uh, in the White House in 2008 with the election of Barack Obama. 
But the notion of progressive uh, momentum um, uh, in history is, uh, is a superficial observation. Obscuring the fragility of black progress and citizenship since the 60s. As African Americans have progressed, they have com- uh, continued to face marginalization and, and uh, the consequent denial of their citizenship. The great tragedy is that the nation mistakenly points to surface-level markers of progress and the absence of explicit racial violence as proof that African Americans have full equality. This, in turn, ignores the significance of historical and institutional discrimination and reinforces the erroneous belief that black people and black people alone are responsible responsible for continued racial and economic inequality. And so I, I think that that is the important point that I wanted to make uh, in, in this segment. And that is that we are continuing to fight against white supremacy and, and oppression and racism. Uh, but because of the fact of things like Barack Obama being elected in 2008, uh, white America believes now that we are in a post-racist society, a post-racial society, and that if we don't achieve, it is our own fault. They subscribe to us laziness when what is really holding us back is institutional and structural racism. And so we need to focus on making the changes that are necessary going forward now that we have come into, in my opinion, our political power, showing that we, and and quite frankly, we alone have the power to say who gets elected president and who doesn't, and it's going to be that way for some time going forward, uh, we need to continue to fight against uh, the forces of white supremacy and to move in the direction uh, that we, uh, of more equality and and uh, to be able, as I had mentioned last week in talking about uh, Dr. Amos's book, uh, Blueprint for Black Power, to think of ourselves as a nation within a nation so that we can consolidate uh, the wealth that we do have to build more wealth amongst ourselves and to, jo- and to generate more power amongst ourselves. All right, so that's the objective that we have in mind. And again, in order to do that, we need to start um, taking advantage of those benefits of citizenship and uh, to uh, also focus on the responsibility and specifically to start to be more political, to start to support political um, uh, campaigns uh, in any way that we can start uh, more of us to run for office uh, and uh, to participate uh, in the democratic process uh, at all levels, both local uh, and national. And we need to see more of us like Kamala Harris in positions of power so that we can make the kinds of changes and create the kinds of laws that um, uh, that make uh, the the U.S. a fair society, uh, and in and in also in doing so to compensate us for the theft of our labor that happened for over 400 years. So with that, um, we will uh, end the podcast for this week. So um, we'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll close out the podcast. <music> 
As I said in the intro, I'd like to uh, close out the podcast by uh, just giving a huge shout out and to also give some coverage to Amanda Gorman, um, the um, uh, the poet laureate, youth poet, poet laureate that gave uh, the uh, poem uh, for the inauguration of uh, Joe Biden and, and Kamala Harris. Um, here is a woman, uh, a beautiful black woman, um, and and I felt that uh, even her style with um, the clothes that she was wearing was perfect. So definitely a role model for uh, what we can do, um, and um, I, I certainly a role model for um, uh, other black women and black girls on what they can uh, aspire to be and aspire to uh, to do and obtain. So, um, and the inaugural poet, uh, she, as an, a, a, during the inauguration, she summoned images both dire and triumphant Wednesday as she called out to the world, um, even as we grieved, we grew. And uh, in language referencing, referencing biblical scripture and at times echoing the oratory of John F. Kennedy and the Reverend uh, Martin Luther King Jr., the 22-year-old Gorman uh, read with urgency and assertion as she began by asking, where can we find light in this never-ending shade? And used her own poetry and the life story as an answer. The poem's very title, The Hill We Climb, suggests both labor and transcendence. And I'd like to just go through some excerpts from her poem. Um, One of them is, quote, she said, we did not feel prepared to be the heirs of such a terrifying hour, but within it we found the power to author a new chapter, to offer hope and laughter to ourselves. It was an extraordinary task for Gorman, the youngest by far of the poets who have read at presidential inauguration since Kennedy invited Robert Frost in 1961, with other predecessors including Maya Angelou, Elizabeth Alexander, a native and re- resident of Los Angeles and the country's first national black uh, or national youth poet laureate, Gorman told the Associated Press last week that she planned to combine a message of hope for the president, um, Joseph Biden's inaugural, without ignoring, quote, the evidence of discord and division, end quote. She had completed a little more of half of the hill. Uh, we climbed before January 6th and the siege of the U.S. Capitol by supporters of, of, of Tr- President Trump. And she said that that day gave me a second wave of energy to finish the poem. And I can definitely understand why. Uh, she also had said that she would not mention January 6th specifically, but her references were unmistakable. She said, quote, we have seen a force that would shatter our nation rather than share it, would destroy our country if it meant delaying democracy. And this effort very nearly succeeded. But while democracy can be periodically delayed, it can never be permanently defeated. So great job, uh, Amanda. A wonderful poem uh, that you uh, read on Inauguration Day. 
and something that I think is inspiring and inspires us to keep moving forward. So that uh, is it uh, for the podcast this week. I want to remind you that the intro music is Transcend by K-I-R-K. The outro music is Ending by Micaiah Beats. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, Amazon, and other platforms. Please subscribe so that you don't miss an episode and also uh, leave me a five-star review. And as I've said before, uh, even if you think there are some things that I can do better, uh, if you enjoy the podcast, leave me a five-star review because there will be individuals that uh, simply because they don't like what I say, that they will say that it's uh, only one star. And to counter that, um, please leave five stars. So I want to end, as I have for the last few weeks, with the quote from Frederick Douglass um, uh, about what it takes uh, to make progress um, in, in, in any country, but especially uh, in, in the United States. And Frederick Douglass said, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation are men who want crops without plowing up the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar of its many waters. This struggle may be a moral one, or it may be a physical one, and it may be both moral and physical, but it must be a struggle. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. Find out just what any people will quietly submit to, and you have found out the exact measure of injustice and wrong which will be imposed upon them. And these will continue till they are resisted with either words or blows or with both. The limits of tyrants are prescribed by the endurance of those whom they oppress. In the light of these ideas, Negroes will be hunted in the North and held and flogged in the South so long as they submit to these devilish outrages and make no resistance, either moral or physical. Men may not get all that they pay for in this world, but they must certainly pay for all they get. If we ever get free from this, from the oppression and the wrongs heaped upon us, we must pay for their removal. We must do this by labor, by suffering, by sacrifice, and if needs be, by our lives and the lives of others. So that's it for this podcast. Thanks for listening. And until next time, keep fighting for our right to be black and beautiful. See you next week.